If you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3, uh, looking at verses 8 through 11 today, this is one of another one of those really well-known but not well uh, maybe understood or lived out passages in the Bible. And I'd like to introduce our thinking about this today with a story of something that I witnessed a self-proclaimed atheist. And a few months ago on social media, he asked this question to Christians. Why do Christians want Jesus to return if it means that all the unbelieving friends and family that they know will then be out of time and in hell forever? Since they're already going to heaven, whether they die or Jesus returns, why do they care so much about Him coming back and coming back now and dooming all their friends that they supposedly love to hell? Shouldn't they want Jesus to wait as long as possible out of love? The answer to that question is right here in the text that we're going to look at today. But the answer is that Christians, so-called Christians, were leaving in the comments section indicated what seems to be true of most. That they may actually know this passage of Scripture and others like it well, but maybe they don't really believe it. The answer is that he received were all over the place, but none of them sounded like what we see from the Apostle Paul here. Some Christians agreed with him, saying that many Christians are just speaking selfishly when they say stuff like that. It just shows that they don't love others like they know they're supposed to. Some were saying that if Christians actually had the heart of God, they would never actually want to say something like, I hope Christ returns soon because God wants to save people. And some said that this was just something that Christians say and it's just kind of an emotional reaction more than anything else. It's just that they see the sadness of what's going on in the world and they want Jesus to come back, but we don't really mean it, so cut us some slack. Some indicated that it's actually only weak Christians who say such things because they aren't willing to do the work of making the world a better place. Some Christians actually thanked him for what he said and said that they would try and make sure that they never say something like that again because it really doesn't reflect the love for unbelievers that we're supposed to have. One person even admitted to saying it earlier in the month and now quickly regretting it. The conclusion that everyone seemed to come to was that love for unbelievers should be the priority. That will keep every real Christian from actually wanting Christ to return soon, no matter what we might say. However, such a conclusion is far from the accounting that we see done by Paul in the passage before us today. And I use that illustration as just yet another example showing off how, how, showing how far off so much of contemporary evangelicalism is from the biblical Christianity that we see unashamedly proclaimed by Paul. The, these conclusions that they're making, these are unbiblical conclusions, and they, they come not because contemporary evangelicals care so much about the souls of unbelievers that they, they actually care too much about the souls of unbelievers. That's, that's not it. It's actually because we see so dimly what Paul understands so clearly 
here, and that is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. This is a value that Paul considered to be worth the loss of all things. And perhaps, perhaps you've felt that too. Maybe, maybe it's a godly concern for unbelieving family and friends. Maybe during the, these COVID times, there was something else about this earthly life that crept into you. Maybe you've seen it in your reluctance to speak the truth when you know it's going to offend or potentially fracture a relationship, or cost you a job, or your reputation. Maybe it's something that has become an idol to you. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's actually, maybe it is a wonderful gift of God that you can't imagine living without. But many of us, many times, have these things in our lives that just, that just tether us to, to some part of this life and make it so hard to say the same thing that Paul is saying here and to truly mean it. But the answer is not to try and love these things less. Rather, it is to understand the worth of Christ more. So that is what we are going to see today from this passage. We're going to see why a true Christian, why a true Christian should be able to look at this world, to look at everything in their life, and even, even their own lives, their lives themselves, and joyfully count it all a loss. We are going to see why not only is it possible, but why it is absolutely necessary that anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ will take the same posture as Paul and count everything as a loss. And we're going to see this, again, not by talking down about everything else so much as by magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do this in four points. Four points. Number one, the surpassing worth of Christ. Number two, the necessity of gaining Christ. Number three, the need to be found in Christ. And number four, our close communion with Christ. And we'll go, I'll repeat those as we go through them. But without going any farther, let's read this text together. And I want to start back in verse three to remind us of the context. And then as we get to our passage, you should be able to see these points just rising up out of the text Look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, the last time I was up here going through Philippians 3, we looked at verses 3 through 7, um, and uh, that was a while ago. But when you look at verse 8, which is again the beginning of the passage we're looking at today, you see a similar statement from what Paul has just said in verse 7. So Paul is actually now expanding on what he said in verse 7. As you, as, so as you look at verses 4 through 6, and maybe if you can remember that far back, back when I preached on that earlier, as you look at verses 4 through 6, you see Paul recounting all of the reasons that he would have to be confident in his salvation. If his salvation depended on his own works, he would have reason to be confident. But his whole point in that section is that even though he has much more, much greater qualifications than all of the false teachers that he is speaking against, he now counts all of those things as loss for the sake of Christ. The gospel says that for us to even think that we have anything to offer, anything to contribute to our salvation is actually Sin. It's an offense to God. It makes our sin out to be less significant than it actually is, and it makes Christ's sacrifice out to be less glorious than it truly is. Paul understands that salvation is all in what God has done and nothing to do with anything that we do to make ourselves acceptable. And if that is the case, then Paul can confidently say with joy what he says there in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's, he's saying that about those things that most people would place confidence in for salvation. He's saying that's all loss. But now he's expanding on that in verse 8. Now in verse 8, he expands on that concept. He says, indeed I count Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's saying, not only do I consider all of those things that would normally be seen as reasons for people to have pride, reasons for people to take confidence, not only do I see those things as lost, but I count all other things, all things, loss for the sake of Christ. He is moving beyond the concept of, of mere religious achievements and seeing them as loss, and he is now expanding on the concept of the loss category by saying that all things actually go in that category when compared to Christ. Verses 8 through 11, this chunk of Scripture that we're looking at today, is just actually one long sentence in the Greek. It's one long sentence, even though the English breaks it up a bit, with each phrase, each word just being used as explanation for why Paul counts everything as lost. And that brings us now to our first point, then the surpassing worth of Christ. The surpassing worth of Christ. The truth of the surpassing worth of Christ is the, is the overarching reason that Paul is able to say, and to say strongly, as we shall see as we move through this passage, that's why he's able to say that I count every other thing as loss. Paul remains completely untethered to this world and everything it has to offer because he understands the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
In fact, you, you might say that as this passage unfolds, that the next three points that I'm going to go over are just a further explanation of this one point. Indeed, they are. And what follows, uh, what follows this first sentence, that first sentence that we see in our English translation, is, is just more explanation of that. But since there's enough to say here and just how strongly Paul wants to make that point in comparison with everything else, I went ahead and made it its own point for our outline. It is hard for us to see just how emphatic Paul is being here. But where you see, when, where you see the word, so look at your, your Bibles, you see that word indeed in the ESV? Or maybe uh, in other translations, the, it might be translated as the, the phrase more than that. Paul here, in that, in what we see translated as that word, has done something unique to try and make a point. He begins this incredibly long sentence in the Greek, with, with, again, which runs from verses 8 through 11, with three particles. The conjunction Allah, with the word min un ge, that's one word, but it's actually made up of three more particles, followed by another conjunction, kai. So, so what you have uh, with that second word being three particles put together, what you have at the very beginning of this th- extremely long sentence that's only represented by the word indeed in the ESV is a repetition of particles that is actually unseen anywhere else, not only in the New Testament, but in all of Greek literature. This is the only place where that combination of words is found. And in fact, it's so striking, it is it's so odd, even to Greek speakers, that we have examples of some of the more recent ancient manuscript fragments where the copyists remove some of those words because they thought that this must have been an error made in the transmission of the text. But the oldest and best manuscripts demonstrate that Paul intended to actually, it looks like, coin a new phrase here. And the purpose for doing this is to emphasize what he is about to say in the strongest way possible. So he doesn't just use the the word for but, like, but I count everything as loss. And he doesn't just use the word even. I count even everything as loss. And he doesn't just say, therefore, therefore, I count all things as lost. And he doesn't just say indeed, even though that is the word we get translated here in the ESV. No, instead of just using one word to emphasize the truth of what he is saying, he breaks language to make a point in the strongest way possible. He's saying none of those words in and of themselves are enough to communicate the certainty of what I'm about to tell you now. Paul is saying, if there is if there's anything at all that's true about me, if there is anything that is absolutely certain, without any type of doubt about my life, it is this. I count everything, all things, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And maybe, maybe the reason that Paul feels it is so necessary to make this point so emphatically is because it is so hard for many of us to really believe that point. We might like to say things like that, and maybe we even uh, believe the truth that this is how we need to be, but in reality, we, we feel the draw to this world. 
to draw to its, its comforts, to its pleasures, and to e- even to really good things in this world. It's hard to imagine life without those things. But Paul, this great example to us in our faith, lets us know in no uncertain terms, in a way that, that can't be doubted, that, that that which many of us think of as maybe a reality that, can't, that we can't fully realize till the other side of heaven, this is the present reality that Paul lives in. The world and even every good thing in it holds absolutely no persuasive power over him. And brothers and sisters, that must be true of us as well. And again, it's not because there is nothing that is, that it, that is uh, it's not because there's nothing that is wonderful or beautiful in this world. It's not because there's nothing that still reflects the glory of the Creator. Right? Many of us, again, we were reminded of that yesterday as we witnessed the beginning of a marriage. Right? That's, it's, it was, it's wonderful to see this commitment this beginning of marriage. We see it in the birth of a new baby, like little Charlotte, who we just talked about. We see it in the beauty of nature, right? And those of you who are married, you know that there is so much God-honoring beauty in marriage, like the one we witnessed yesterday. And then the gift of family, you know, and the gift of parents, the gift of children. Right, a couple of days ago, uh, my wife and I were sitting in the living room on couches that are kind of perpendicular to each other. And, and Caden, our little 15-month-old son, he's just kind of going between us. He, and he's just kind of starting to get into walking. Um, so it's really fun. So he's doing this cute little thing where he kind of, he like slowly starts to let go. And then he, he starts stepping toward, and then he like takes one step and then and he gets, starts going fast. And then the momentum of his, of his big head starts sending him quickly in that direction. And he kind of walk runs um, and his momentum kind of gets a hold of him. And he just gets kind of right up to, the ed- to you or to the edge of the couch. And he doesn't take that last step and he falls and he puts his face up and he smiles and he squeals uh, with the light. And, and, and we're like, yeah, and he clapped for him. And he does this little kind of clap thing too. And it's adorable. It's like the cutest thing that you could see. And, and um, it's just one of those wonderful things that, that brings joy and even, even glory to God as you enjoy moments like that. And so it's maybe perhaps with moments like that in mind why Paul has gone to such lengths to emphasize that he means what he says here. He says, all things a loss. Panta, the Greek word panta, all things, even the best that we can experience in this world, I consider it to be a loss. And the key to why that can be, as improbable as that might sound, comes in the comparison that is made. It's not in defaming any of that stuff. It's, it's in this phrase, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I really like how the CSB puts it. He says, in view of the, pers- the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's, it's lost because if you stack it all up, stack up everything in this, in this world, that it has all the good things that we can possibly see, if you put that on one side and you put Christ on the other 
that's loss. That's loss over here. If I have to choose. It's kind of like, it's kind of like how we think of the light from a flashlight at night. This is what Paul is saying. If you, so if you ever go camping in the middle of, uh, and, and you're out there in the middle of the night, a flashlight is so helpful. You love the flashlight. You are so thankful for the light that it provides. It can help you see a lot of things. It can help you appreciate what is around you. You can be genuinely appreciative of the flashlight. But when the sun comes up, and it's the middle of the day, it's not that the flashlight has suddenly become anything less than what it's always been, but next to the light of the sun at midday, it's hard to know whether or not the flashlight's even on. That's what Paul is saying here. I can appreciate the flashlight for everything that it is right now and how it helps to show a little bit of what the light is. But when it's next to the sun, there is no comparison. So Paul is saying that if you take all things, even every good thing, and you put it on one side of the ledger, and you put Christ on the other, no comparison. Living for anything, or even living for everything, on the other side can only be considered a waste, can only be considered a loss if Christ is on the other. And in light of the highly exalted way in which Paul has presented Jesus Christ just a few verses earlier, this makes total sense. So I know it's been months for you all since we studied Philippians 2, 5 through 11 together. And again, that's one of the most important passages of Christological majesty in all of the Bible. But remember, as the Philippians are reading this all at once, it's still right there, right in their mind. So, So let's look at it again real quick to get it in ours as well. Look what Paul says about Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see, again, Paul describing the divine majesty of Christ and the miracle of the incarnation. And then he ends that section with this picture of the transcendent, highly exalted Lord over all of the universe and the Lord over every created being. High, exalted. We have this majestic picture of the second person of the Godhead. And yet... Now, with with that in mind, with that being what they're thinking about, look how Paul refers to him. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to draw your attention to that also because this is actually 
And this was surprising for me to find out, actually. This is actually the only place in all of Paul's writings where he refers to Christ using that personal possessive pronoun. He says in many places, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that in lots of places, but this is the only place where he says, my Lord. And isn't it so instructive to us that it is here in this context that he does this? Because it's so easy. It's so easy, right, for us to, to look at all this stuff, even the good stuff on that lost side of the equation and say things like, my family, my job, my time off, my vacation, my collection of whatever, my house, my car, my health, my life, my freedom, my rights. These are the things that we easily understand in this personal way. And Paul, without any hesitation, counts all of those things as loss. And he turns and looks at Christ Jesus, at this Christ Jesus whom he's just described and says, my Lord. Loss. My Lord. Again, it's like a bunch of different versions of my flashlight, my flashlight, my flashlight. And Paul's saying, my son. My daylight. If I have to lay those things aside in order to embrace my Lord, I do it without hesitation because my Lord is Jesus Christ. Before we move on to the next point, I feel like I need to just, I just reiterate one more time for the sake of not being confused that, that many of those things that we, that we are to count as loss are good things. They are blessings from God. They're good gifts to be enjoyed. Responsibilities that God has entrusted us with and commands that He expects us to act responsibly in. None of those things are to be seen as a loss in and of themselves. This is only loss as we view them in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It is important that we keep that in mind as we head into our next point because Paul is going to get even stronger in this comparison language. What Paul is saying here, what he's speaking of here, is simply the working out of the truth that Jesus taught in those two short parables from Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point is there is nothing, nothing that is not worth quickly just giving up and letting go of in order to gain Christ. And that brings us to our second point, which is the necessity of gaining Christ. The necessity of gaining Christ. So we read, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here we see that that first per, the, the first purpose clause in this long sentence from verses 8 from 8 through 11 he says in order that i may gain christ so here paul is putting flesh to what he has just said about all of those things from the previous part you must be able to see and recognize the all surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus as your lord because you need to be able to lose them if you are going to actually gain Christ. You have to be able to. He is still using that accounting metaphor from verse 7. The idea being that Christ is the one thing, the one thing that at all cost must be gained. You can move around everything else if you have to. You can give up whatever you need to, but Christ must be gained even if it means suffering the loss of everything else as it did for Paul. In order to gain Christ, Paul had to suffer the loss of so many of those things that we like to attach that personal possessive pronoun to. Even some of the good things, right? My family We have no reason to believe that Paul ever had a wife or kids. We know that he definitely didn't during his entire time as a Christian. And he couldn't have had one. Even if he really desired one. Because the work that God had called him to left no room for a family. Here was the man who taught us so much of what we know about what it means to be a husband. What it means to be a wife. What it means to be a parent. Yet he had to suffer the loss of ever having the joy of returning home to a wife of his own. Ever having a little child throw their hands around his neck and call him daddy. My rights, my freedom. He he had to suffer the loss of those things time and time again as he was constantly, unjustly imprisoned. Spent so much of his life in the places he did not choose to go. My health, he was constantly beaten. He physically suffered. He was left for dead. He was whipped. We know he had some sort of malady, probably a physical one that he suffered with his entire life. He was constantly traveling. He was constantly doing the work of his ministry. He had no time for a home, for property, and even his own life. He was unable to even call his life his life. It belonged to God and he knew and understood that. And even though, again, it is hard for us, is it not? It is hard for us to to see and hear a story like that and not feel pity for someone who has had to suffer so much. But Paul will have none of that. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things for his sake. And therefore, I count them all as rubbish. As rubbish. And the, the word translated as rubbish, it literally means garbage, or it can even mean dung. The idea is that he sees nothing positive in them at all if it means that he does not gain Christ if he takes those things. 
It's not like he's choosing the best of two options. It's not like he, he sees this alternate life that he could have had as a, as a family man, as a well-read and influential leader in the community, an esteemed Roman citizen, a leader among his people. One, as, as, he doesn't see that as one good way that he could have lived. And the other way of being a suffering, mistreated missionary to the Gentiles as a better way. He doesn't see that. Even, even that would make no sense to many people. But Paul is going far beyond that. And he is saying that that life, what so many people would consider the good life, if he were to choose that life over his current life of being physically tortured, ridiculed, imprisoned, a life that leads him to an early martyrdom, if he were to choose the so-called good life over the one he has now, it would be akin to choosing garbage over the greatest treasure in the world. That's what he's saying. That is how much Paul considers Christ to be a gain. Good things, even wonderful, beautiful things, are garbage compared to the gain we have in Christ. This is how we must think and act. Seeing the gain of Christ as such an exceedingly great gain that we are willing to suffer the loss of anything in this life. Because even the, even, even the best things compared to Christ look like garbage. And that phrase, in order that, in order that, that just demonstrates that Paul sees this as a necessary transaction when it comes to gaining Christ. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, if he is not willing to, if he's not willing to not just lose everything for the sake of Christ, if he's not willing to not just lose everything for the sake of Christ, but also consider it as valuable as rubbish by comparison, then he does not see that it is possible for him to gain Christ. He says, if I don't do this, if I don't have this attitude in me, I don't gain Christ. And it's not because God requires a certain level of sacrifice from me in order to save me. That's not the case at all. We're going to see that even more clearly in the next point. It's that the inability to lose everything and consider it rubbish in the process is the indication that you are still blind to the true surpassing worth of Christ, of knowing Christ. Again, we're just seeing in Paul exactly what Jesus said would be true of all of his disciples. That they would treasure him, someone who's truly his disciple will treasure him supremely above every other thing, whether that thing be sin or a blessing. We're going to see this exact thing from Jesus in just a few weeks as, as our church continues to be shaped through the preaching, through the, Travis's exposition of Luke 14. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but in Luke 14, 26, we read, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When Travis gets to that passage... 
I promise he is not going to have a four-point sermon being with point one, here's how to hate your parents. Point two, here's how to hate your children. Point three, here's how you hate your siblings. And here's the, the sub-points. You know, if you're going to hate your parents well, this is what you need to do. If you're going to hate your children well, make sure you exasperate them when you're around and then maybe get, you know, cages for when you're not. Uh, and like, he's not, he's not going to expound like that because that's not Jesus' point. That's not what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is teaching his followers what it truly means to be his disciples using the same type of what seems to be extreme comparative language that Paul is speaking of here. Your love for Christ, your devotion to Christ must be so strong that even your closest relationships look like hatred in comparison. That's how great the gain of Christ is. Paul is just demonstrating with this language that he is a true disciple. That's what he's doing. And that that gaining Christ means willingly forsaking everything else because compared to Christ, it's rubbish. It is rubbish. That phrase, in order that, also governs a second purpose clause, which we see at the beginning of verse 9, which brings us to our third point, the need to be found in Christ. The need to be found in Christ. So Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them to be rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I need to count everything a loss because I need to gain Christ and I need to be found in Him. This is speaking to our union in Christ. That we are now in Christ. We are in Christ. We are united to Him. And this phrase, be found in Him, to be found in Him is actually modified by what we see following it. What does it mean to be found in Him? It means not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the explanation of how this happens. And again, what a wonderful truth this is. And it's one that we should know well. And that we, are going, that we just sung about in that last song. And that we're going to celebrate at the end of this service. We are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. Meaning there was never any way, never any opportunity for Paul or for any of us to be found in Christ through some sort of adherence to the law of God. Again, this is why Christ is worth losing everything, before, everything for, because you had no way, zero percent chance of ever being found in Christ apart from the work of Christ. Notice that just, just like gaining Christ means necessarily that you are rejecting everything else, Being found in Christ means a rejection of a certain type of righteousness and a desire for another type of righteousness. The belief that there was ever any kind of hope of something inside of you being impressive enough to God that He would decide to unite you to Himself. That was never a thing. There's nothing. We have nothing to bridge that gap. Nothing to appease, to appease God and ask Him to, to be found in Him. 
We are sinners. We are rebels against God, separated from any type of real life in Him. Separated what should be forever. We have a debt from our sin that we can never repay. We can never pay it. And just like we talked about from verse 7 last time, anything that we would try to do, that we would try to try to make amends for, to try and pay off that debt, it just accrues greater debt because it's just more sin. The sin of pride. As we further malign His name and His holiness by thinking so little of Him that we actually think our works could live up to His holy standard. Our so-called righteous actions just condemn us further. So verse 9 starts off by telling us what being found in Him isn't. And then it goes on to say what it actually is. Not a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. We have no righteousness of our own to offer. So if righteousness is a requirement for gaining Christ, for being united to God in Christ, then God has to give us righteousness. And that is what He does in the Gospel. Jesus Christ lives in perfect obedience to the law. He lives in full obedience to the law in action and in attitude something none of us could ever do, ever hope to do. He goes on to say here, Paul goes on to say here, that that righteousness depends on faith. Faith is the demonstration. It's the demonstration, the the outward action that shows that we are found in Christ. God regenerates our heart. And we're, we're now able to see our sin for what it is, deserving of death. And hell, separation from God forever. We are, and we are able to see that. And then we are also able to see the treasure that is Christ Jesus. Who lived the perfect life and then died in our place. And when we place our faith in Christ's payment for our sins on the cross, the wrath of God towards those sins is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And then... In a further wonder, further great reality, God also now transfers the righteous life of Christ, His obedience, that life is transferred to us. He, he no longer, He no longer sees us as sinful enemies, but precious adopted children. And He looks at us we now reflect back to Him the pleasure that He took in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, His Son. And that's why it's so easy for Paul to say that anything, anything that is going to stand in the way of me being found in Christ, I want nothing to do with. Whatever the greatest thing in my life might be, I will gladly lose it forever and call it rubbish on the way out if it means I'll be found in Him. So for His sake, I will suffer the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in Him. And another aspect of what is entailed in gaining Christ 
the third purpose clause, that I may know Him. Our fourth point, the close communion with Christ. Close communion with Christ. We are to gladly count all things as a loss for the sake of the intimate communion with Christ that we now have. And it's the third purpose clause coming out of the, that, tran, uh, that, that transactional statement, in order that. So Paul has suffered the loss of all things in order that he may gain Christ, and in order that he may be found in Christ, and now in order that he may know Christ. We see that in verse 10. Uh, and then the rest of what we see in verse 10 is connected to what it means to know him. It says that I may know him. What does it mean to know him? And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. That word know here is not in reference to mere comprehension, mere knowledge, but rather a, a closeness that comes with shared experience and deeper relationship. That's why the examples of knowing Him that we see uh, in, in the rest of verse 10 are not about growing in greater mental comprehension, but have to do with experience. I want to know Him by knowing the power of His resurrection. This isn't talking about how he wants to experience the power of the resurrection through his eventual, actual resurrection. He, he gets to that in the next verse. This is, this is the present tense. He is saying, I want to know Christ by knowing this power right now. As I live right now. Knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection. And knowing it now. Paul is appealing to the need of the Christian to know and experience the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in the current life that he is now living. It seems like today, in many ways, the absolute power of God displayed in the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead has been dulled, and we don't think of it that way as much as we should. And it's a lot to do with, you know, TV shows, movies, video games. People are dying and coming, to back, and coming back to life all the time in entertainment. In entertainment, now when a character shows up again who is thought to be dead, it's not even surprising anymore, right? And to, to many, and even in Christian circles, the resurrection of Christ is presented apologetically as kind of the best of available options and explanations for what happened to Jesus' body. I remember in college having... Uh, I just read the book Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I remember having a conversation with someone after having just read that book, which is the story of a journalist who goes about trying to disprove Christianity by disproving the resurrection of Jesus. And since he can't do it, he becomes a Christian. That's the book. So I'm taking this book, as many did at that time, as this evangelistic cue. And I'm having this conversation with this person, challenging them on all of those same points. So you're not a Christian, huh? Well, what do you think happened to Jesus' body then? Why didn't the Romans just produce the body and end Christianity right there? And so they, they go to what, what in the book is called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die, but he maybe appeared dead and woke up in the tomb and left. And I'm like, ha, gotcha. That was in the book. 
There is no way a man as badly beaten as Jesus got up, rolled away that heavy stone, overpowered the guards, and then appeared to his disciples in such a way that they were convinced that he was in a glorified body just a few days later. That could not have happened. Well, maybe the disciples stole his body. Aha! That's in the book too. The disciples stole his body and they made up that story and then every one of them was willing to suffer a martyr's death for the sake of a lie that they knew? That doesn't work. So this is like going to script. I'm I'm feeling pretty confident. In a little while, they're going to have nothing to do but admit that the resurrection must have happened and they'll become a Christian. And then I get this response. I don't care which one of those options that we end up with. Any one of them is more probable than that a man rose from the dead because that is impossible. And that is absolutely true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so much more than just the best available option for what happened to Christ's body. It is the supernatural power of God doing a miracle. It's on display as he does the impossible. Demonstrating that the sacrifice of Christ was acceptable and as the first fruits for what we can all expect one day. And Paul is saying that I want to know Christ in such a, a deep way that I see and experience that power right now in this life. I am willing to count everything a loss as a loss so that I can know Christ like that. The same supernatural power that raised Christ's physical body is on display in us and supposed to be on display in us as we are called from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the same miraculous power. That's a, that's a miracle in the same way. And it's on display in each of us as we walk in a way that recognizes, uh, that, that recognizes, that, that, recognizes that that demonstrates that we have counted all a loss for the sake of Christ, when we can walk faithfully in that truth, in this world, in this life, it's supposed to be in the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You see Paul talk about that in Romans 8, 9 9 through 11. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is saying that the resurrection power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in you to cause you to live faithfully through the Spirit of Christ that now dwells in us, we have available to us the power that raised Jesus from the dead, which allows us to live in this world in a way that would be impossible otherwise. A way that allows us to count everything as a loss for His sake. And this is most on display as we share His sufferings. 
as he says, as we share in his sufferings, being able to truly know him and the power of his resurrection comes with sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in death, in his death. And what does that mean? Becoming like him in his death? And just remember, enduring the most horrific and unjust punishment possible while giving glory to God, being obedient to God, and even embracing it so that God might be glorified through our suffering. This is the primary reason that Paul talks about suffering as a gift. And remember in, in Philippians 1.29, we talked about that a lot. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you to suffer for His sake. It's a gift because it is in suffering, it is through our supernatural response to suffering that we demonstrate that we are in Christ just as Paul did. As we share in Christ's suffering by being persecuted, by being maligned and made to suffer for reasons that, that we would not have suffered if we were not his followers, the true Christian will see himself becoming more like Jesus in his death. That's why we embrace suffering. Because of what it shows about Christ in us. As we share in Christ's suffering, we exemplify this. If Christ is truly in us. The word becoming is, is passive. Becoming like Him. It's something that is happening to Paul. That God is doing in him. So we long to know Christ in such a way that those same people that look at the resurrection of Christ and say, that is impossible, should also look at our lives lived out in the midst of suffering and watch our response and watch us as we count everything a loss. That, that life, that willingness to lose everything if necessary and still joyfully embrace Christ, they should also look at that and say, that is impossible. That is impossible. That deep, close communion with Christ is not exemplified best when we just feel great and encouraged after our morning devotions. That deep, intimate relationship with Christ is seen and felt even the best as we are able to count everything as a loss for the sake of Christ, as we long to be found in Him, and as we suffer in such a way that He is seen in us. So when Paul ends this sentence by saying, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection of the dead. He's not expressing some type of uncertainty in what God can do. Rather, this is a statement that is recognizing the divine miracle of it all. Attaining the resurrection of the dead is that, is that final step, that final proof that Christ is yours and he's yours and that you've been found in him. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says this, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul is saying that there is 
no cost that could be too great to be included in the number of the dead in Christ on that day. There's nothing that's not worth giving up. On that day, on that day, wherever Paul's body is right now in the world, the same supernatural power that enabled Paul to do what he said he's doing here, to to count everything in this world as a loss in order to gain Christ, the same supernatural power that enabled him to do that, that enabled him to embrace suffering and even death for his Lord Jesus Christ, that very same power will in an instant restore flesh and blood to a corpse And He, along with all of those who have considered and now consider all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the living and the dead, who have joyfully embraced this transaction, will be caught up together with your Lord, my Lord, in the clouds to be with Him always. Which now brings us back to the obvious answer to the question that we started with. Of course, all who are found in Christ are longing for that day. And it is because all that this world has to offer, everything that could possibly tempt us to want to stay here, no matter how good some of those things might truly be, cannot possibly be considered anything but loss when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Father, thank You uh, for these words from Paul. Thank You for this example that we see. God, would You free us from those things in this world that we are tempted to love and go after. Cut the tie that binds us to them. And would you do it by helping us to see and recognize the majesty of Christ, the great gain that we have in Christ to see the glory of Christ more and more fully. That all of those things will look like flashlights compared to the sun for us. I pray that, that we will be a church that is marked by that. And as we go out and we live among this world, and as suffering and persecution gets harder and stronger and they see us respond in love, embracing suffering and pointing to Christ, that it would cause them to look at us and go, that's impossible. That that would be the mark of Grace Church as we go about our lives here in this life. So in the name, the precious name of Jesus Christ, who unites us all together through His blood that we pray. Amen.